Welcome to Alliance Live. In this episode, we hear from Professor Katrina Matheson, Head of Scotland's Drug Deaths Task Force. We explore Scotland's drug death rates, what can be done to better support people, stigma and some of the innovative work taking place. Scotland reported 1,264 drug-related deaths for 2019. That's the latest figures we have. This is up on the previous year. It's around three times the rate for the rest of the UK and is the highest drug-related death rate in Europe. I began by asking Professor Matheson why we have this situation in Scotland. Well, this is a situation that's come about over over a number of a number of years um, or decades even. I mean, you'll be aware that there's many factors to it. We start in Scotland with um, a more concentrated level of social deprivation and health inequalities that come along with that. So when you have that as a baseline, and then on top of that, we have got the history of, of drug use of um, and the patterns of drug use within that are quite high risk patterns of use. And we have a cohort of people who are aging and the aging cohort is, some, is referred to quite often. Some people deny the existence of an aging cohort, but it's very clearly there in the data. It's not the whole picture, but it's definitely there. So there are a group of people who are in their 40s, 50s, you won't find many people in their 50s with a long-term drug problem now. And they have um, aged prematurely, if you like, because of their drug use. They're at much higher risk uh, physically. And um, because of their long history of drug use, they have a lot of additional trauma and coexisting mental health problems as long as well as physical health problems that makes them more susceptible. So we have that, we have high patterns of high risk drug use. More recently, we also have cocaine use. And you just, it's like a perfect storm, which is a horrible term to use, but it, it, all of these things together and the lack of investment means that services have been quite difficult to access and people haven't wanted to access them because of stigma. And we'll maybe talk more about that. So all of these things that have come together and created this situation, which has been evident in the in the drug death figures for 10 years, they've been increasing. So um, I'm, you know, very glad to say that's why we're in this dreadful situation now that so many people are losing losing their loved ones. And so the task force was set up in 2019. Could you give me an overview of the remit and an idea of work that's being undertaken? The remit was to examine the evidence, collate the evidence, collate good practice and help to coordinate that response. Um, so an evidence-based response to tackling drug deaths using um, evidence from other parts of the world, but also bringing in that unique Scottish um, challenge that we have, the unique picture in Scotland, and bringing those two things together to um, present our um, plan, our forward plan of how we will and are um, tackling, uh, how Scotland can tackle that. The task force is made up of um, a group of really volunteers, if you like. They're not, nobody is, there's few people are actually paid on the task force to do what they're doing. They're giving up their time um, because of the importance of addressing this. Uh, and so we are um, doing it from a number of 
a number of angles. If you look at, there's some areas where the evidence is very clear. So things like naloxone and maximizing the reach of naloxone through all sorts of different outlets. I can say more about that if you like, but I, I can also just go on and list some of the other things we're working on. Um, it's also very clear from the evidence that get, having people in treatment is protective. So um, we had to really focus on making sure our treatment systems are easy to access, are you know available and are, are user user friendly. Very much need to put the patient, the client, back in the centre of that. So that's what we've been another strand of our work through the medication assisted treatment program. There's other bits of evidence where where you no, know, it's obvious to make an intervention. So if people have had a non-fatal overdose, they're at a very high risk of going on to have a fatal overdose in the next 12 months. So that's a clear point of intervention. So that's why we have focused efforts around using that point of intervention to try to reach out to people and offer them either access to treatment or support or what would work for them really at that time. So there's a strand of, of work around that. And um, underlining all of this, of course, and what came up in an early consultation exercise and comes up all the time is the challenges of stigma. And of course, stigma prevents people from accessing not just drug treatment or support, but all the kind of healthcare and mental health support that they need. So people don't go to the GP because they're worried they might be stigmatized or treated differently. And they might not go for healthcare because they feel that they might be treated in a way that will be unpleasant. So they don't go for healthcare until it's maybe more of an emergency and it's more difficult to manage or to, to treat. So stigma is another strand of, of our work. Let's focus on stigma. To those with no experience of it, it may seem like a bit of an abstract concept, but it really has real-world implications. Yeah, yeah, it really does. It comes across so strongly. It's a difficult one because there's stigma where people experience being treated differently. And that, of course, puts people off, as I've said, it puts people off going for care or treatment or support because they anticipate that's how they're going to be treated. And the stigma comes through other, other uh, strands as well. So we've got to be really, really sensitive to these issues and make sure that we understand you know, the, the backgrounds of people. The stigma goes beyond individuals, of course. It affects families who are, don't want to share information about their, about their family members' drug use. You hear some terrible stories of families who, you know, say, don't want to admit if somebody's had a drug-related death and talk of other you know, maybe saying other things to, so that they don't have to admit that. And so families go through um, terrible issues about being stigmatised and the fear of stigma as well. And then, of course, it affects communities as well. There are certain communities who that have a, a reputation because as areas with high levels of drug use and that impacts and people don't want to go and live there. And so these stigmas really goes through so much of, of our society. It's a big a big issue to, to tackle. We felt, even though it's not an immediate obvious thing to tackle drug-related deaths, that we just felt 
it came up so strongly that we needed to take some leadership in that. And so we developed the stigma strategy. We brought in a lot of groups are doing really good work on stigma and we brought some of them together um, to develop the stigma strategy. And now the Scottish Government will take that forward. We have got a charter that's going to be published soon that will be really just showing what we expect services and professional groups to treat people with respect and compassion. It's as simple as that. That is the task force work on stigma and the government really now has to take a leadership role in, in developing and implementing the rest of the stigma strategy. Looking now to treatment, do you think we need to make a move towards more trauma-informed care in Scotland? Without a doubt, that's at the heart the heart of it. I mean, there's a number of aspects to, to the MAT standards. One is about just ease of access, so being able to get people into treatment really quickly, you know, giving people and not making them jump through all these hoops. Again, this is what we have heard through consultation and feedback that people have to jump through all these hoops to get, you know, things verified and before they ever get near a prescription, at which point they're the triggering factors for seeking treatment may have, you know, passed. So when people need treatment, they need to be able to get treatment. So it's not just about methadone, whereas, you know, there's now a number of other options. So having those choices available, no matter where you live in Scotland, is key. But then there's a number of uh, the standards are around how care is provided. So trauma-informed care, making sure that the environments are psychologically informed environments is, is the terminology but that's that has trauma-informed care at its heart really it's about understanding the needs of people and how you can best work with them and interact with them to get the best the best outcomes and keeping people in treatment is protective I say keeping people in treatment for the for as long as they require that is another important part because we what we don't want is, is people being discharged from treatment because They've maybe broken some rules, you know, having these rules and then people break the rules, they get discharged, these punitive discharges, as it's described. Um, that's got to become a thing of the past because that just doesn't help anybody. And then it puts people at risk because when people are out of treatment, they're at high risk of, of drug deaths and overdose. So trauma-informed care, psychologically informed environment. And the workforce has to be trained to do that. And that's no small undertaking. The shift that's required to get the medication-assisted treatment standards um, is going to take a number of years, really, across the country. Mm-hmm. But we can, but we're, you know, we're starting. And the enthusiasm for it has been good. There's been a consultation exercise just being pulled together now. I haven't seen the full findings of that, but... And from what I've heard, it's been it's, it's been well received. And during that consultation, I understand that you reached out to people with lived experience as well. And you have lived experience representatives on the task force. Was that important to you to include their voices? Of course, absolutely, of course. And um, it's probably been best demonstrated through the, the consultation of the MAT standards. Yeah, that was that was built in. Um, from the outset it's been built into the task force from the outset that all of our I mean the main task force itself has um, four people with direct lived experience and we've got one member with family experience 
and um, then we have various subgroups, subworking groups, working different things, and they have additional members as well who come from family and lived experience, living experience. So all all groups have have representation to make sure that that perspective is is built in. And we also have some reference groups as well, uh, so that we can, you know, if we have a document that we want to just get more views on or a direction of travel, we want to um, get extra insight into or extra consultation on, then we've used our uh, reference groups uh, to provide that. So it's, yeah, the intention is to make sure that that perspective and people then work together with, you know, from their varying perspectives. You know, this is a challenging bit, I think, sometimes because there's a number of perspectives around the table. You know, there's a policing perspective, a criminal justice perspective, there's a health, and within health, we've got various professional groups. And we've obviously got the patient, client, family member. So everybody has their perspective on, on the issue. And then we have the evidence as well. So pulling all of that um, together is the challenge of, of a, a group like this. Let's move on to looking at the, the kind of bigger, top level, longer term possibilities for solutions and the idea around decriminalisation of possession of small amounts of drugs for personal use. Mm. Do you think that is a potential solution and has it worked elsewhere? In a word, yeah, my personal view is yes, it's a definitely a solution. I should point out, though, before we maybe get into that, that there's um, there's also a working group within the task force looking at criminal justice and, and change, like possible legislation change. And there's a consultation going on about that at the moment, um, about possible changes to the legislation. So, um, yeah, just as a background that that work is going on. So decriminalisation, yes, I believe it would make a difference because at the moment it seems that people can be end up with a custodial sentence for a number of offences which are you know possession of relatively small amounts so it's for personal use or maybe just within their own um, small groups. And that doesn't help anybody. You know, it gets people into the criminal justice system um, and then they get into a cycle of um, going in and out of the criminal justice system. And um, even if they do have treatment in between, it's, it becomes interrupted. It's, you know, and then when they come out, there's touch points within that. You know, when people come out of prison, they're at higher risk. Um, and they've got to get various things set up again around accessing, reaccessing services and treatment, and it can affect their housing and affect the relationships. So there's so many things that become impacted, negatively impacted for, for that, you know, if it's, as I say, if it's that level of personal, um, personal drug um, consumption for personal use. It's different when somebody is, you know, is you know has a pill press that's turning out vast quantities of benzodiazepines. Don't get me wrong; I absolutely think that that's that's in a different scale. But those sort of smaller level of use and possession, I think decriminalisation and setting the limits. I think there's people have given some thought to this already: where you would set, how and where you would set the limits. So 
so that's not difficult, I think. There's various other things around the criminal, uh, sorry, around the legislation, but some of that, as you'll be aware, is some of it is a, a Westminster issue, but there's things that can be done instead. So, you know, there's sort of proxy um, or de facto uh, decriminalisation, if you like. So rather than giving people custodial sentence, if you diversion from that into a treatment system is, is an option. And that's something that we have got a, a test of change through the task force just being set up now to, to see how that, how that will go. Are there any further radical changes you want to see made? I've read, for instance, that we may see drug checking services set up in Scottish cities. Drug checking is a, a really um, important harm reduction intervention. So we have this. So again, we had a consultation exercise in the early stages of the task force, and this is something that's suggested, plus from the evidence we've, that we've looked at, we know that drug checking is... Um, you know, it's a good it's a good intervention from other parts of the world. So, and some sites uh, in England, although that's more around festivals and things, but it's an opportunity. So, uh, so drug checking is you know where somebody can take a non, there's a drug and just check either check what if it is what we think it is. That's the most sort of basic level of drug checking. Sometimes you can also then find out what what actually is in there. So. There's a bit of work to be done before you can then get the actual um, drug checking facility. So that, that's what this, the project's doing. It's working with all the partnerships and the collaborations and making sure, you know, all of those are considered and addressed and their views are heard and, and built into the, the development of the actual service. And another important thing to note, to highlight is that you have to apply, you have to have a, a license, a home office license for a drug checking facility. And there's a, it's quite a process to apply for these licenses and it takes time. So again, that's why it's not going to happen overnight. You know, we're talking about, a, it might be 18 months away before we actually get a facility. I mean, I'm just seeing that as a ballpark because it depends, the licensing bit is going to be the crucial bit. We are trying through discussions with the Home Office to see if that could be speeded up a little bit, that licensing aspect of the process, which would be great. So positive discussions there, but that's um, our Scottish Government colleagues are, are doing that on behalf of the drug checking project. So that's a really exciting opportunity. And I suppose the vision is that any needle exchange service could also have a small drug checking facility as well. So, you know, even in a community pharmacy where they do needle exchange and space is an issue, obviously in some places, but you know, a small unit where you could actually also check and um, people could take their, um, their drug substances in to get them checked. I think it's really, really important <clears throat> moving forward because what we don't have here, Touchwood so far is is drugs like fentanyl and carfentanil, which are just horrendous, the deaths caused by those in North America. And if that comes here in any in any volume, we really will be, you know, that it will just be dreadful. So we need to be able to pick up and things like that very quickly. And then that drug checking gets built into a surveillance system so that you know, when you know something's around and circulating, you can your surveillance system can 
kick in and warn other other areas of the other people and services that need to be aware of that. Staying with harm reduction, there have been calls from various quarters for a safe injection facility, especially in Glasgow. What are your thoughts on that? Again, the evidence base is strong and undoubtedly the evidence supports having supervised um, consumption spaces that are supervised by, you know, trained um, nursing um, staff who can not just give advice on things like injecting sites and but also deal with an overdose when it happens and they do happen a lot in you know if you've got high volume of people using these services like you get in Canada for example that we've we've heard uh, good evidence from then you will get a lot of overdoses so people need to be very well trained and um, responsive for those types of services. The advantage of supervised consumption sites could be that they help to get another way of getting people into treatment and support. Um, but I think to put all of that in context, it's never going to be, certainly isn't the answer, you know, it's not the full answer. It could be part of the solution, but it's not necessarily going to be viable in all places. And even in Glasgow, it's a big city, you might, they've got a proposal already to go as soon as they can use it with the, when the legislation makes it possible. But, you know, that's one site in a, in a very big city. You know, how I think there's questions here about models of how you can actually deliver something like that that will have best impact. So. Surrounding women and drug use in particular, we, we have talked about stigma already and women are much more stigmatised than men for different reasons. What are your feelings on the way women maybe access treatment or don't access treatment or can't access treatment and how that impacts on them and their lives. Just going back to the data, of course, what we've seen is that there is, although overall the majority of drug deaths are men, the increase in women is much a steeper curve, if you like, a a steeper line, so particularly in older women. So there has been work done to examine this in more detail and to try and understand some of the drivers behind and why more women are dying and we've mentioned trauma, and I think part of the issue for women is, we've mentioned stigma, and I think the women, the issues for women are that these are just magnified enormously. So women will suffer more trauma, let's be clear about that. They'll suffer more trauma because they're far more likely to be victim of abuse, of sexual abuse, of abuse from part, you know, partner abuse, um, Obviously, there are some women who do get involved in transactional sex, and that puts them at much higher risk of of violence, of being used and manipulated. And then along with that, women who have families are in constant fear of their children being taken away from them. So they're not going to go to, they're really nervous about going to services where that becomes apparent that that they have children, they have a family and they're very worried about losing their family. So so obviously, obviously women then aren't going to seek treatment. And we do know that having children removed is another scale of trauma for women on top of having already had traumatised lives. 
having children removed is often just the the absolute end of the um, end of the line for many women. So that's why we have this, you know, this dreadful situation. And actually, it's on the agenda for the next task force meeting. We because we we know that it's we saw again in the latest figures that that trend was continuing. So, and there has been a report, there's been work done on this already. So we're not starting from scratch. We know what the issues are. We now need to put some things into place. So we'll be making some recommendations for Scottish government to take forward, to try to address particular issues for for women. Um, So, you know, things like making sure they've got extra support at the points around child removal, because that's such a clear area. And things like prison transitions, making sure, again, women have extra support at these points, um, high-risk high risk times. There's a whole host of things there. I've just touched on some of them, but there's no doubt that um, women are um, really, really affected in a way that makes, you know, makes their lives very, very challenging. If you think about the number of people who are in drug use who also experience problems with mental illness or mental health or problems with their mental well-being. Are the two being tackled well enough concurrently? Not to date, they haven't been, no. And that again has come out from our evidence very clearly that you know you have addiction services and mental health services and they're not remarkably they're not really brought together. So it's built into our MAP standards as well that people should have access to mental health services but also people in mental health services and then you know it becomes clear that there is you know significant drug um, related um, problem that they can have access to addiction services but still have their mental health service support so you know it's not it shouldn't be one or the other both should be provided if and um, how people need it so yeah there is within their math standards we also have a number of test of change projects so there's a group called multiple complex needs and this is also a big driver in Scottish government they they have a bigger program of work looking at multiple complex needs for people so that's not just mental health problems but homelessness and um, these things there's so many overlaps people who have alcohol drug use issues homelessness mental health problems so government are looking at as well, and some of our tests of change will help provide some of the evidence around how best to go about it. But it's integral to the MAT standards as well, that people should have access to mental health support. Obviously, living in the time of COVID-19, how have you seen that impact on people who use drugs, who need treatment and support? The real impact has been, unfortunately, around access to services. So people obviously have largely lost their face-to-face contact when they are in treatment or are in, in a service or some support. So a lot of that has gone online and that's not worked for everybody and it's highlighted issues around digital exclusion. So people who don't have phones and don't have you know, run out of data. And, and so that's been challenging for them. There's been initiatives to try to overcome that. People have been given phones, and, but it's still... It's still not helped and people do, well, it has helped in, in some places for some people, but the challenge really is missing 
and especially now as things go on and on, missing face-to-face contact with their key workers. And so other services have, you know, reported this. So, for example, I do a lot of work with community pharmacies who have still continued to, have always been open and have always continued to see people. And they report, um, you know, they report that they have had seen visually and just seeing that people are struggling more and people will say that you know people who are on long-term prescriptions will say that they're they're struggling and they're missing their face-to-face contact so you know some pharmacies are doing their best to try to help along the way but it's that's a challenge so that's a challenge for that's a challenge for individuals they can't haven't got the face-to-face but the real challenge for us um, all in terms of trying to reduce drug deaths is a crucial part of the strategy is to try to get more people into treatment. Um, you know, we're just not really able to do that at the scale we need to do it to make the impact. While we have um, COVID and we aren't able to get new admissions to treatment and people aren't very clear how they go about it either in COVID times, how do they get treatment? So we've also seen changes and other things like and um, the way prescriptions are dispensed so people are getting more medication home they're not going to necessarily go to the pharmacy every day to get medication now that is fine for some people and actually some people have done really well with it but um it's not ideal for everybody and it does put increased risks so there's a lot of things have to be done around that risk assessments to make sure you're not putting at people at, at any increased risk and then there's access to things like injecting equipment. That's also reduced. Although, I mean, injecting providers, injecting equipment providers have been doing really, really good work. There's um, going around doors, doing home deliveries, posting posting things out to people, but um, the volumes, the total volumes are, are reduced. So there's lots of challenges around COVID and um, it's undoubtedly going to slow down the progress that we can make with reducing drug deaths. Can you tell me what work there is being done around living experience? At the last task force meeting where the First Minister and the Minister were present, the task force made a strong case for the importance of having living experience as well as lived experience involvement, and not just at task force, really at the whole level of informing services so that we can have a truly responsive delivery of, of care and support. So since then, we there's been a proposal. We've consulted with people who've been involved in developing networks. And there are some, also some groups in Scotland who, you know, where there are service user groups, for example. And there is a proposal that's now quite well developed around living experience and active drug user experience. So this would be initially around supporting groups that exist already and helping local areas to develop and facilitate other groups. So it will be for people who maybe are not in services or who maybe use needle exchange and also people who are using drug treatment services to make sure that their voices are heard within their services. I'm not saying bringing all those people together necessarily, that might work and that might not. There'll be different variations in local areas. So this is a really significant development for Scotland and I think this will be a really important way of making sure our services 
are truly responsive and the voices of the most marginalized people can be heard. And I suppose it's also an investment that the, go the government hasn't made before because they have invested strongly and very successfully in the recovery network for people with lived experience. And that's gone, I think, very well. We now have a really good supportive recovery groups around, around the country. And so this is now to, to develop that further for those who are active drug users and have living experience. Thank you to Professor Matheson, Chair of the Drug Death Task Force, for speaking to us on this episode of Alliance Live. Keep an eye on our Twitter feed, the handle is at Alliance Scott, for the latest in Alliance Live outputs.